Cocaine might be a drug that you associate with the 1980s. In recent times, it appears to have become a less popular recreational drug. This is likely due to the cutting agents that street dealers combine with the drug, degrading its purity, and the increase in popularity of cheaper party drugs such as MDMA. However, a 2018 audit found that it was still the second most used recreational drug within the UK, with 6% of 16 to 24-year-olds admitting to having used it within the last year. Additionally, due to police crackdown, no pun intended, on popular cutting agents like benzocaine, the strength of cocaine available has seen a dramatic increase, going from as low as single figures in 2009 to now an average purity of around 64%. This increased use and increased strength is having real-world effects. Deaths associated with cocaine doubled between 2015 and 2018, and 2019 marks the highest deaths on record linked to cocaine. Clearly, if you haven't already, it's only a matter of time until you encounter a patient with cocaine toxicity. And that's why this week we're looking at the pathophysiology of cocaine, the symptoms involved with toxicity, and what we need to do to manage these patients. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh and I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care and this week I've got a guest with me who I'll let introduce himself. Hi yeah my name's George. I'm a trainee paramedic practitioner working in a GP surgery. And thanks for joining us George. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and helping us do this podcast. So this week we're going to be talking about acute cocaine toxicity and this is one that you approached us with an idea to talk about because it's it's something that is not well covered particularly in paramedic training and it involves a few modifications to uh, our typical practice. Yeah so I, I went to a few cases of cocaine toxicity and I haven't been to many of them at all in my time qualified as a paramedic and even before that as a student I'd only been to one and I just I really didn't know as much about it as I would have liked to while I was treating the patient and I had to refer back to guidelines much more than I usually would on on things like this and I did a bit of reflection and spoke to a few colleagues and Josh and and um made me realize that as a whole we don't deal with this type of thing very often and I think it was really worthy of uh, some reflection and some learning. Yeah absolutely and in fact I've only been to uh, cocaine toxicity once that I can I can really remember uh, and that was the other spectrum to, to the sort of things that you've been to from, from our conversations. You've come up with a case for us to talk about and we're going to talk about the case uh, we'll talk about the modifications to practice and a little bit about pharmacology and then we'll talk about the the takeaway points that you and I have uh, have learned from the work that we've done on cocaine. Yeah, I thought it'd be really useful to, you know, put our learning against a case, um, sort of a mismatch of a few things that I've been to and a few things that colleagues have been to. Um, we've come up with hopefully a, a real world scenario uh, that people might be able to relate to and then Hopefully they can put the learning we talk about against that scenario and see how things might pan out. And it's worth mentioning that uh, we're talking about this case pre-COVID, so we can think back to a time before any of us knew what level three PPE was. And uh, as George has already said, this is a, a made-up case. So although it's based and, and drawing on our experiences from from what we've been to and, and what our colleagues have, have been involved with, it's a case that's been created to assist learning. So George, do you want to start us off by uh, introducing the case? Yeah, so... 
we have a case we are on with a new ECA. They've only been in the job um, for a few months, so they're fairly fresh out of training school. Um, it's a day shift, and you've booked on at half six in the morning. Um, so you, you're getting your cup of coffee ready, and the tones go off nice and early, um, getting you out the door. So you're dispatched to a 30-year-old male, and it's come down as a Category 2 with chest pain and shortness of breath. The information given to you by control indicates possibly the patient's had previous cardiac issues, but no other past medical history is given. Given how new your ECA is on on the way there, you're having the discussion about what, what the, this could be. So you're thinking it might be a, an MI or a PE, maybe some trauma, possibly even a chest infection. You mentioned just really briefly that about cocaine toxicity, and, and that's about it. You, you don't discuss it in any great detail. When you arrive at the property, you find the patient lying on the floor, their GCS 15, able to communicate with you nice and easily, and they're complaining out of 7 out of 10 crushing chest pain that radiates into the jaw and through their left shoulder. He's quite short of breath and is unable to complete full sentences and having to take significant pauses between groups of words. So some observations that you gather pretty quickly. Has a blood pressure of 190 over 110, a heart rate of 124, a temperature of 38.1, a blood glucose of 7.2 and a respirate of 22 breaths per minute. The 12 lead ECG that you've recorded shows sinus tachycardia. It's quickly apparent that there were signs of a party at the address, including numerous empty alcohol bottles. Um, you question the patient surrounding his alcohol intake, and this quickly follows into drug use. The patient freely admits that he snorted between five to six lines of cocaine, and this was snorted approximately two hours prior to the ambulance being called. The chest pain that he's reporting started 60 minutes following the cocaine ingestion and slowly built to a 7 out of 10 pain score. During the observations, the patient reports an increase of pain to 9 out of 10 and has started to become agitated. Patient began to ignore commands and pull at ECGs, cannula and other observation equipment. Okay, so quite a lot of information there. I'll sum up with what I've taken away from that. So we've got a, a young male who approximately two hours ago has taken cocaine, uh, approximately five to six lines. He's been drinking uh, all night and presumably potentially doing more cocaine and other illicit substances all night. He's short of breath. He's complaining of chest pain. He's hypertensive, tachycardic and tachypneic. And he's also got a mild hyperthermia. And in the processes of us being there, he's becoming increasingly agitated uh, and difficult to manage. So are we able to uh, calm him down? Has he got friends there who might be able to uh, get on top of this agitation and, and support to calm him down? Yeah, so at this point, your ECA encourages the friends that he's got there to try and calm him down. They come and sit, sort of sit next to him. Um, unfortunately, this fails and the patient becomes more and more agitated. Okay, so what uh, happens next in this case? So in this scenario, you've managed to get your IV access um, before he becomes too agitated. You consult your JR Calc pocketbook and you decide to give 10 milligrams of IV diazepam slowly over two minutes. You think, oh, that's it. I've given the diazepam, this, everything's going to be good. Initially, there's no response and the patient is still agitated. Shortly following this, the patient's GCS reduces and settles at seven and thankfully manages his own airway. The patient is then 
pre-alerted and blue lighted to the nearest receiving ED. Okay, so there's quite a lot of information to unpack there, and that scenario is up on our website as part of the article on generalbroadcast.org.uk. And one of the things probably to highlight from that case is the use of diazepam, which a lot of people listening to this may not be as familiar with using diazepam uh, in this way as a sedative agent, not for a patient who's experiencing experiencing a fit uh, and that's part and parcel of, of the the way that we wanted to reflect on this case and and some of the things that we wanted to explore so i think what we'll do now following our, our reflective model we've kind of we've talked about what happened in this uh, in this theoretical case we'll now talk about so what and, and talk a little bit about the pharmacology and the physiology involved with cocaine intoxication cocaine is a compound extracted from the leaves of a South American shrub. As Josh alluded to at the start, it was quite often seen as the drug of the rich. It was very expensive. Um, Now it's really common. So for those of you who might work in sort of big urban areas, we'll probably see this quite a lot. Cocaine is available in different forms and different purities. Patients often and patients' friends might not know what they've actually taken. Cocaine is often cut with other substances baking soda, nappy powder, or other stuff, or ethanol even to form crack, so crack cocaine. So it's really difficult, and people are going to take different strengths. Like a lot of other recreational drugs, you might get, you know, from the same dealer, two different days, you might get two different strengths of the drug, uh, which makes it really difficult to know what what they've taken, and even harder for us to to assess. And and that's kind of relating it back to the case above that's why you might have this seasoned cocaine user who normally six lines would be a good night whereas if he's got a particularly potent batch then this might be the the six line that either kill him or certainly make him toxic yes absolutely and and i think that's what we need to be wary of um, as you say especially with those seasoned drug users of, of any type of drug is that one week to the next it might not necessarily be the same cocaine and obviously a lot of people snort it so they take it in lines um, it's quite difficult to know if someone says six lines like in my scenario how much that actually is because they don't weigh it out before they take it so a lot of people go on cost so you know a gram of of powder cocaine that you would you know you might pick up at, as a student or in a pub commonly known student coke or pub dust uh, might cost anywhere between 30 or 40 pounds depending depending on where you are so often people might say they've taken 30 quids worth well if, if you can take away that 30 pounds is about a gram then you can sort of start to put that into context it's worth noting that cocaine could be taken in a variety of ways um, snorting smoking or iv are the most common ways so if a patient's told you they've taken an iv it's going to have an onset of seconds and it, the effect could last up to an hour and a half. Um, if they've snorted it, the onset time could be sort of anywhere between two and five minutes and the duration of the effect is is a bit shorter, you're down to sort of 30 minutes. So that's quite important to know that if the patient's taken it two hours ago, then they're most likely going to be coming down from the effects. And again, this is why taking a history is so important. So what I found really interesting researching this is that crack cocaine is actually a more pure form of the drug. So it's known as a free base. And the way that they combine it with baking soda and ethanol actually makes it a, a more pure drug. So you're actually getting a stronger concentration of cocaine. 
Uh, and I always assumed that it was cheaper because you, you know, if you imagine a crack den, you imagine a low socioeconomic sort of, uh, sort of homeless area, so to speak. And and I was surprised to know that actually crack might be more potent, and and these patients might have a higher level of of cocaine in their system. To me, that is really surprising. You'd naturally assume that if you've mixed it with something, then you're going to have less less of the original, which would make it weaker. But this is why it's so good to reflect. And I think something else that's important to note in your case, George, is cocaine's interaction with alcohol. So cocaine combines with alcohol to form a toxic metabolite called cocoethylene. And this makes the action of cocaine stronger and last three to five times longer. So toxic effects may be prolonged and the risk of death is increased 20 fold when cocaine and alcohol are mixed. So that's particularly important to bear in mind when risk stratifying that to the case that we talked about before, where this patient has taken on a significant amount of cocaine and a, a significant amount of alcohol, which could explain why he's having these symptoms so far down the line after having ingested cocaine. So that could have been a really key factor in this scenario that normally he takes cocaine without alcohol. And in this party situation, he's already intoxicated through alcohol and then taking taken his regular amount of cocaine. And then now we know that the, the effects of that cocaine are much stronger, hence the outcome. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about cocaine's pharmacology then. So cocaine has a number of properties. Firstly, it's a local anaesthetic. So if you think of most well-known local anaesthetics like benzocaine, tetracaine, lidocaine, uh, they're all from the same group of medications. Uh, and it was used as such in, in the early days of medicine. But Due to its other actions, making it highly addictive, it's been classified as a stimulant narcotic. And its pleasurable qualities were quite obviously the reasons for its popularity and abuse. So this comes from its action as a monoamine reuptake inhibitor. This means that it binds to reuptake proteins at synaptic junctions and prevents reabsorption of these neurotransmitters. So in particular, we're talking about the catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline, dopamine and the indolamine, serotonin. So what do those individually do? Because that's a lot of names, which may be meaningless to some people. So let's break that down. So catecholamines are released during a sympathetic response. And whilst this is often talked about in the context of a threat, like the fight or flight system, it's important to remember that these neurotransmitters are the ones that give us the feelings of elation, like an adrenaline rush. And that comes from doing exciting things. Our brain is hardwired to reward itself by releasing dopamine, to encourage beneficial behavior. So through a process literally named the dopamine reward system, we get the feeling that we're doing a good thing. And so any drug that releases that is gonna feel rewarding. Dopamine is also involved with thermoregulation. So it's likely that this is the contributing factor to the hypothermia that's noted in toxic patients. Adrenaline binds with alpha-1 and beta-1 adrenoreceptors. So alpha-1 causes the contraction of smooth muscle, so vasoconstriction increasing our blood pressure, and beta-1 causes positive inotropic and positive chronotropic cardiac effects. So that means it increases the contraction force of the heart and it increases our heart rate. Serotonin is typically referred to as the feel-good chemical. So it has a large part to play in the regulation of body functions, notably mood. And many of the medications that we associate with depression and mental health focus on getting more serotonin into the system. So if we understand all of this and we bear all of this in mind, we can understand why someone would enjoy the therapeutic effects of cocaine as it gives us an abundance of these chemicals that make us feel great. In high levels, though, 
we start to get those toxic effects. Cocaine intoxication generates generally the following signs and symptoms. So in a psychological sense, you're going to find the patient's got increased energy. They could be quite hyper. Um, they're going to have a happy mood. They're going to have quite garrulous speech. So they're going to be quite garbled. They're going to be jumping all over the place. You're going to be sort of, as a clinician, going to be trying to pinpoint an answer for one thing. And they're going to be going off on, you know, their favorite type of pants. And you're going to keep having to try them, draw them back to the here and now. Um, so quite difficult to take a history. Yeah, then. They're, they're going to be challenging. So in a situation like this, it's naturally going to be quite hard to take a uh, a history from them. From a physiological point of view, so what are we going to be seeing from the OBS? Um, pretty much as, as my patient in this scenario, they're going to be tachycardic. They're going to be hypertensive. They're going to have tachypnea. They're going to be really quite fidgety. They're going to be hot. They're going to be sweaty. Um, so you're going to have real trouble sticking the ECG leads on. Um, you're going to be trying to get the paper towel on them to to wipe them down, to get them to stick. This fidgeting is going to make the simple things like putting the blood pressure cuff on and leaving the blood pressure cuff on while it's cycling. It's all going to be quite hard because they're, they're going to be restless. So it's important to, to differentiate between a patient that's intoxicated with cocaine and a patient that's suffering with cocaine toxicity. It's when the patients start to have an overabundance of these neurotransmitters and they begin to have a negative uh, impact is when we'll start to see some of these symptoms so as i saw you, they're going to start getting agitated combative you might sort of see some aggression physiologically they're going to become more tachycardic so you might have a mild grade tachycardia when we arrive and as they get worse they're going to become more and more and more tachycardic the chest pain is going to worsen you might then start to see sort of poor ecg changes so you might start seeing some st elevation and it might become so bad that they actually start to infarct this is when it can become really serious they're going to become hyperthermic so they're going to be in, unable to regulate their temperature and it's going to skyrocket and then there is a risk of fitting and because of the hypertension you know there's the ever the ever potential for stroke so that's i think the the key thing that people need to take away isn't it what what we don't we want to avoid and and obviously is clearly not correct is that every patient that's a little bit hot a little bit tachycardic uh, and enjoying their cocaine high does not need to be smashed full of diazepam however being agitated being delirious having palpitations and chest pain and being horrendously hypertensive is not part of a normal cocaine high and they're they're moving towards presenting as a sympathomimetic toxidrome and I think that's the key that people need to take away. And something I'm really trying to learn in my practice is recognizing toxidromes, because if you understand toxidromes and, and can work them out uh, and recognize them, then then there's a lot less work for you to do. So this this is a classic sympathomimetic toxidrome. And, and for that, you can think if you, if you like acronyms, you can think maths. So madrasis, agitation and arrhythmia, tachycardia hypertension or hypothermia and seizure and sweating and that's some simple things to keep in your mind that this is what that toxidrome looks like the rhesus room have done a fantastic summary of toxidromes and we've linked that in our article so you can go and find that or easily find it online and i think that's a must listen for for all pre-hospital clinicians so if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the rhesus room toxidrome podcast make sure that's one of the first things on your to-do list after you finish listening to us obviously Going back to not every patient that's taking cocaine needs diazepam, it's the same way as 
every patient that we go to that's taken an opioid, we wouldn't give naloxone to every single patient as a rule. You know, we're quite good at assessing when when they've had a really negative impact and, and we need to give them naloxone to when they've just had a small amount of opioids and they've got, you know, a smaller pupil size and their speech is a bit slurred. I think we're quite good at differentiating that that cutoff. It's just a different type of drug. Exactly. And and something else that you've kind of touched on is we need to think about the effects of cocaine toxicity and then the effects of those effects. So the majority of what we've talked about above is is to do with the direct actions of cocaine and, and the signs and symptoms that it causes. But uh, stroke is definitely something that these patients can present with. An NMI is definitely something that these patients can present with. Aortic dissection is, is been known in, in patients with cocaine overdose. So we need to bear that in mind and we need to not just focus on this patient's had cocaine. We need to sort their blood pressure out. We need to sort out their tachycardia you know, and their agitation. We we need to bear in mind and ensure that we do a detailed workup for these other uh, these other pathologies. So clearly the management of these patients will be tailored um, depending on your findings following an examination. However, classically, these patients will present in a hypertensive crisis, often with chest pain and potentially signs of other ischemic injury. As a result, and we're going to discuss the management of the patient in my scenario. So diazepam is a medium strength, long acting benzodiazepine, competitively binding GABA receptors in the CNS to produce CNS excitability, giving it properties such as an anticonvulsant. It reduces anxiety and is a muscle relaxant. In the context of our scenarios, it's helpful to us in a number of ways. JR Calc states that paramedics should administer titrated doses of diazomals in the context of severe chest pain. This helps us by relaxing smooth muscle, dropping blood pressure and reducing coronary artery spasm. This improves myocardial oxygen supply while reducing the workload on the heart. It is important to note that diazepam should be titrated slowly when given at the same time as GTN, as there is a risk of a severe drop in blood pressure. Diazepam has a long half-life, so unlike in the context of fitting, where the advice is to give 10mg stat to stop the seizure, in the context of our scenario, less is more. Remember, you can give more diazimals, but you can't take back if you've given too much. It is worth considering the patient holistically. A 50-year-old comorbidities who is dehydrated from a long night partying will react very differently to a fit 28-year-old who has just had a lot of coke. We should be mindful that the drug has had a long enough time to circulate and take effect before giving more. And I think the key point is that less is more and you cannot take back what you've already given. Diazepam also assists us by acting as a sedative for these highly adrenalised patients. As in my scenario, cocaine will cause agitation and non-compliance with the assessment. And whilst this is not being given in the same way as you might perform a procedural sedation, the helpful addition of diazepam's sedative nature will make the patient more compliant and crucially more comfortable as prolonged anxiety and agitation is not a nice experience. Yeah, so this is this is kind of a, a 
the tricky bit and, and a bit of a, a grey area in the way that J.R. Kalk describes the use of this drug. So J.R. Kalk would suggest giving diazepam in contexts of uh, severe chest pain and severe hypertension uh, related to cocaine toxicity, as we've discussed earlier. But it kind of dances over the the sedative aspects of diazepam and, and I think almost does people a, a disservice by not preparing people for the for the sedative effects of diazepam so whilst as you said george we are not doing this like a a procedural sedation this isn't really uh a a sedation of acute behavioral disturbance podcast uh, as that is a massive massive case i think it's important to accept that there is a sedative side effect and that is part of the therapy that we are administering for these patients who are highly adrenalized and and more than likely heavily heavily agitated because agitation and delirium is not a normal part of cocaine intoxication it's it's a sign that they're toxic so this is another important part that diazepam is playing and and uh, an, an important part of the therapy that we're administering to these patients so as a result, I think it's important that we take or try to take the same pr- precautions and the same procedures that we would any other sedation. So in my day job, uh, sedations are, are part of my scope of practice, and this is something that we're doing reasonably frequently. So uh, what could be helpful for the for the first step is, is to put the patient on high flow O2. So uh, one, that helps to denitrogenate the lungs in case of an inadvertent over-sedation uh, or respiratory depression, as happened in, in your case uh, that we discussed earlier. But the the other thing that this helps to do is helps to rule out hypoxia uh, as a as a potential contributor or cause for for any agitation uh, or CNS symptoms that we're seeing. Ideally, we should be applying full monitoring for these patients. But again, as as you've explained in our case study above, often with these highly agitated patients, that's difficult. So ordinarily, we would want end tidal nasal CO two. Uh, and three lead ECG monitoring, blood pressure, etc. So we want the entidal on to monitor for respiratory depression and apnea, uh, and that's really, really important to to have on there because it's far too easy to to miss respiratory depression in these patients. And if that's absolutely not possible at all because of the agitation and the combativeness of the patient, that's fine. We need to document that very, very well uh, and apply that at absolutely the the earliest convenience. We should have suction, BVM and airway adjuncts to hand uh, and this is a standard process whenever you're giving any kind of sedative drug uh, that you should have those to hand visualised and have people aware of where they are. What you really don't want to do is, again, as the, the case above, accidentally knock this person's GCS off and inadvertently heavily sedate them and then be scrambling through the the bags to, uh, to, to, to find the kit that you need. So you should have that stuff out into hand and and the team be aware where it is Uh, and then what I find particularly helpful is to announce to your team the intention of 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 what you're doing so you've got to remember that if you're using diazepam in this way you're you're using it in a situation that is infrequently encountered uh, for for all of us but particularly for for paramedics working on on the road and you may have members of the team that that aren't aware of the the indications or aren't aware of the support from the JRCAL guidelines uh, to use diazepam in this way so what what could be useful is to to announce it to the team why you're giving diazepam to reduce the chest pain and to reduce the agitation and and that you've got a stop marker that you're not aiming to heavily sedate this patient Uh, and then as you've said George the 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 absolute number one 
thing to bear in mind and take away is that you you don't want to give this drug too quickly you've got to give it time to circulate you've got to think about your needle to cns time uh and and not be in too much of an urge to push too much of that drug too early on diazepam is is a is a long-acting benzodiazepine so you're not going to be in in the risk of chasing your tail like like when we're using ketamine uh you don't want it to be wearing off quicker than you're giving it uh, but that's not a, a realistic risk here so so less is more give it slowly and and get that patient to that therapeutic window that you really want we're so used as paramedics to giving that diazepam quickly in that seizing patient that in a scenario where it's potentially getting a bit sort of dicey because the patient's getting agitated maybe it's their friends on scene are also getting agitated and you your, your natural instinct for most paramedics when giving diazepam is just to give it and you've really got to remember that you need, you need to give it slowly and as you say get to that therapeutic window in an appropriate time and and if it's a really you know if emotions are heightened and everybody's shouting and the patient's very agitated you're going to feel a lot of pressure to to give it and you're going to feel a lot of pressure to try and make that situation better quickly so i'm sure it's very tempting to oh i'll just give a meal more i'll just give another meal quickly and and your your perception of time probably won't be what it is normally because you're going to have uh your adrenaline going yourself so uh it's just important to to be looking at your watch uh maybe you know have someone watching the clock and uh and just take a breath and make sure you're you know you're not feeling that pressure to 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 put it in too quick yeah exactly it's going to be a highly stressful situation because it's very unlikely that you might not have encountered this for a long time or it might even be the first time you've ever encountered it so let's have a little chat about aspirin then. So most people are going to be very, very used to giving aspirin. It's a key factor in, in an ACS bundle. And whilst its use is very well supported and evidenced for a normal ACS, this is slightly different. So it's probably worth giving it a little bit of thought and discussion. So JRCalc recommends administering aspirin uh, in cases of, of chest pain, but this is no no exception as the vasospasm of cocaine can potentiate a thromboembolic event and we're going to talk a little bit more about the physiology of that in a second but administering an antiplatelet would be of benefit in preventing this and preventing any thrombus that's forming from building up further so it's important to factor in the patient's presentation when we're considering aspirin. This might be the first thing we reach for for an ordinary chest pain patient, but it may not be the appropriate first drug to, to give to these patients, um, mainly because then they may not be in, in a position to be able to take some aspirin. So we need to put it in perspective. Yes, we need to give it, uh, and yes, we need to give it in a timely fashion, but there may be other things like diazepam and GTN that take precedence that immediately help us get on top of, of this patient's symptoms. Yeah, so I think that moves quite nicely onto GTN. Glycerol trinitrate works by undergoing denitrogenation to form a nitric oxide as a potent vasodilator. As Josh said for aspirin, we're all pretty clued up with GTN and we probably use it. It's probably one of our most frequently used drugs. So by administering this GTN, we're going to combat the vascular constriction that the cocaine causes. And this in turn is going to improve blood flow and minimizes ischemia. It's also going to drop the blood pressure. Evidence suggests that this is effective in decreasing BP and in achieving vasodilation, but there were notable cases of rebound tachycardia 
that occurs to maintain cardiac output. We should give GTN cautiously, uh, especially if we're giving it at the same time as diazepam, as they're both known to drop blood pressure significantly. As I've said, we can always give more, but it's much harder to take it back, especially if you've caused your patient uh, to become syncopal. There's a a meta-analysis that I've put on the article on the website uh, that basically just looked at GTN and, and uh, diazepam. Diazepam uh, had, again, not phenomenal evidence, but the best evidence for relieving the effects of, of chest pain and certainly agitation in these patients. GTN was pretty good, but had, I think, more cases of, of you know worsening tachycardia which we definitely don't want to do in a patient that, you know, is potentially got a problem getting oxygen to their heart. So, yeah, I think we can def- definitely give it. I, w- I would give it, but our guidelines support us with giving it. But we we just need to be careful. And you didn't give GTN, did you? Because uh, of what happened with the, the diazepam. So, no, the only drug I gave at the time was diazepam. Yeah, which is, you know, which is fair enough. I, I think there's the potential for getting some gtn in first it's it's really easy to do and if the patient is compliant enough that you might be able to get some gtn in that might just take the edge off the pain improve the flow and and actually they might be more compliant as a result of that but you then just need to be hyper hyper aware that if you're giving diazepam on top of that that you don't boot the blood pressure down so it's all about you know slow steady you can give more medicine but you can't take any back yeah and i think this highlights the importance of knowing what the drug you're going to give does and not just knowing the guidelines of when to give it. Next, that kind of brings us on to cooling. So patients that have sympathomimetic toxidrome are in danger of becoming hypothermic. And so your patient was quite hot, but I wouldn't say in the upper thinking plus 40s, damaging levels of hypothermia. So maybe aggressive cooling probably wasn't warranted for that patient. But patients that are, you know, 40 plus really dangerous levels of hypothermia, we should be thinking about aggressively cooling these patients because hot temperatures can be quite damaging to our bodies on a, on a cellular level. As I've said above, uh, hypothermia and cocaine toxicity is, is probably a combination of the impaired thermoregulation from the dopamine release, uh, the excessive muscular activity given in the context of, of, of cocaine. So that could be, you know, dancing or quite a lot of physical movement or the patient could have been fitting or have a seizure. So that could uh, contribute to the high temperature uh, and also increased metabolic activity from the catecholamine release. So as I've said, it's important to begin cooling these patients. We're not going to talk about it too much here because there's lots of other resources talking about hypothermia and cooling. And again, we've linked to that in the article. But what I would say is think about the the four elements of of how we retain heat and how we lose heat. So thinking about conduction, convection, radiation, and evaporation, and trying to target all four elements to, to maximize our cooling. So there's lots of stuff out there about putting blankets over patients and then pouring water over the blanket and allowing heat to you know radiate away and evaporate away. So we're talking more about that in our hypothermia podcast, which is in the article. And also uh, we've linked to Resus Rooms podcast on heat illness, which is really good and, and goes into that a little bit more. So finally, we'll touch on uh, PCI on thrombolysis. So I felt this was important to touch on because as we've talked about above, we need to consider this difference between the effects of cocaine toxicity and the effects of those effects. So 
as as we've already said, the, the principal issue here causing chest pain is reduced blood supply to the heart from the vasoconstriction uh, and the reduced cardiac output from the tachycardia and an increased myocardial oxygen demand from the tachycardia. And that's what in turn causes the ischemia, causes the pain uh, and, and probably causes the ECG changes. So you could be fooled for thinking that if we resolve those, as we've discussed, then there's there's no need to consider MI uh, and, and what we would normally be thinking with chest pain and ECG. But that isn't the case. So cocaine is associated with a prothrombotic state. So without going too much into physiology, we know that it's associated with an, in, an increase in platelets, an increase in platelet activation, a release of uh, plasminogen activator. So that's the stuff that is key in fibrinolysis, the breaking down of clots. So if you in inhibit its action, you're going to be more likely to form clots. And we know that autopsies from cocaine users have increased rates of uh, atherosclerosis and, and thrombus formation in their circulatory systems. So we we really have to consider the high likelihood that this patient is going to have a cocaine-related uh, or cocaine-induced MI. Um, and despite treating the effects of cocaine as above, we still need to assess them for uh, normal ACS workup, and, and they will definitely require some, some in-hospital bloods and assessment and may require further treatment. So I doubt there's anyone still using thrombolysis listening to this, certainly in UK practice, but if you're in a service, perhaps really rurally, that still does thrombolysis, then these patients aren't a candidate for it, as the ST elevation may not be from a thromboembolic cause. So they just need to go to hospital as normal and, and uh, do the targeted management as, as discussed above. But these patients may need PCI. So if we're able to and distances allow, then it's probably best to convey these patients to a, a hospital with PCI capability because uh, if the ST elevation remains or their troponins show that there's ongoing myocardial injury, then they'll probably have a, a, an emergent angiogram. Uh, and indeed, there's a number of research pieces out there showing that uh, a pretty high proportion of these patients presenting with cocaine-induced chest pain are found to have a thrombus somewhere in their heart later on when they go for angiography. As well as the things we've mentioned above, there are some other things to consider when it comes to cocaine. There will be some extra writing in the article on the website that covers what is speedballing, packers or stuffers, whether or not we're going to consider activated charcoal and commonly found cutting agents that you might um, need to consider with people that have consumed cocaine. We've covered that pretty comprehensively. And as George says, there's quite a lot of other information on the website, on the article. But George, let's move on to the now what stage of uh, of this reflection. What have you learned from from reflecting on this? And, uh, and, and what are you going to take away? Okay, so some pretty key points for me is to try and really keep keep your cool. You know, we're going to be in a potentially really stressful situation. Your heart, your heart is going to be up. Your brain's going to be going ten to the dozen here. So we really need to do what we do best as paramedics and take a deep breath, slow down, and remember that you know we do have a little bit of time, um, and we need to think about what's going on here because this is probably a situation we haven't been in for a very long time. I think my key takeaway point from here is less is more we need to be slow with the titration of that diazepam because we really can't take it away once we've given slightly too much and i think it's okay that if the patient does become slightly sedated and their gcs does reduce that that's fine 
it's a known effect of diazepam and every patient is different you might have done this last week and given five milligrams and the patient was still agitated but you do it this week and give five milligrams again over the same time frame and the patient's gcs reduces as long as you manage the airway okay then it's really not an issue and i i think there's something not to be too concerned about when thinking about giving diazepam yeah i agree it like you say it's a it's a known side effect of it um manage it properly and i think prepare for it properly so prepare for an inadvertent sedation clearly we're not aiming for it but uh prepare for it so have that monitoring on have that nasal etco2 on uh, and have that airway kit um to 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 hand and and make sure you know everyone in the team is aware of what could happen because then it just makes your job easier if you do inadvertently sedate these patients yeah exactly like like so many things communication is key so i think for me what i've taken away is the the other importance of these acs meds so i was i was quite aware of the importance that diazepam had to play for these patients and and i was reasonably comfortable with the with the sedation process prior to us starting this podcast because that's more in my sphere of of confidence uh because of my day job but uh, I think what I'll, I'll definitely take away is the importance of those other ACS drugs. So I wasn't quite aware of how prothrombotic cocaine was. Uh, and I definitely think I would have been at risk of doing what happened in this case study above and forgetting the, the parts to play that, that aspirin and indeed GTN had to play. So uh, I definitely wouldn't forget those moving forwards and, uh, and, and definitely see where they fit into the, the, the patient treatment pathway. Uh, they may be slightly lower down the priority scale, uh, depending on how the patient's presenting, but they're definitely important and definitely important for us to get in pre-hospitally. George, thanks so much for uh, for sharing that with us and um, and bringing us that case. I know that it's certainly given me a lot of cause for thought and a, and a lot of education and reflection. And I know people listening to this will have benefited from listening to that case. As always, we have written a article to go along with this podcast. So you can find our article at generalbroadcast.org.uk. If you can like and share the podcast, that really, really helps us out including leaving a review on iTunes. That's really helpful to share the podcast and and get uh, more people listening, which helps us keep making it for you if you enjoy what we're doing. Uh, And just before we go, we thought we'd mention there's probably going to be a bit of a delay with episodes over the next couple of months. So I'm just about to start my dissertation. Simon is in the middle of his prescribing module and Alex has just started a new job. So uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, life is a little bit hectic at the minute. So we're still going to be releasing episodes they might just be a little bit less frequent over the next couple of months Uh, and as soon as life has returned to any kind of normality then we'll go back to our normal monthly releases but that's all for this month so thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next one